Around sunrise of November 8th last year, someone saw a few small flames off of a road called Camp Road, which was outside of a town called Paradise near the Sierra Nevada mountains in California. And certain years, wildfires can be very dangerous in California, so whoever this was called it in, and firefighters were on the scene within 10 minutes to survey the fire. But they were so alarmed at how quickly it had spread in such a short time that they called the sheriff's office immediately. And the sheriff went with a drastic measure and he ordered the evacuation of the whole town of Paradise and several other nearby towns. Paradise is about half the size of Greenwood, if you can imagine what that evacuation must have been like. Well, it's a good thing he did because by sundown, that fire burned the entire town of Paradise to the ground. And that was only day one of the worst wildfire in California history. It took 16 days and the combined efforts of more than 5,000 firefighters just to contain the blaze. And by the time they did, it had burned through 150,000 acres, which is more than half the acreage of Indianapolis. It burned through 20,000 buildings, 14,000 of which were people's homes, and 86 people were killed. All of that destruction. And this February, the local power company came forward to say that most likely the fire was caused by a few sparks. They had a malfunctioning power line in the area. It sent off an alert that it was malfunctioning, and only minutes later did they get the call that there was a fire in the area, so they had to conclude a probable cause. That malfunctioning power line probably let out some sparks, and those sparks started the fire. And so the worst wildfire in California history was started with just a few sparks and a flame probably the size of a man's finger. Fire is powerful, and it is essential to good life, right? I mean, fire powers the engines in our cars, it warms the cold, it cooks our food, it does so many good things for us. But when it gets out of control, the destruction that it can bring is widespread. And you may not realize it, but each and every one of us in this room has a power within ourselves that is very similar. We've got a power to do tremendous good, or if that power gets out of control, it can cause damage that works through not a town and not a forest, but the very life that you have spent your decades building up. You could, with one word, spark an inferno that could burn through your marriage, through your relationships, uh, through everything good that you have built up. And today we're going to see what that power is that we have. It's something so effortless that every single one of us in this room does it regularly without effort or thought. We're going to see what it is, and we're going to learn the one way that it can be tamed. If you're just joining us, we are about halfway through a sermon series on the book of James, and we are calling it Complete because the book of James was written to sand off our rough edges and help to complete our faith. Now, James was a man who was an earthly brother of Jesus. He followed Jesus for his whole lifetime, presumably, and then those three years when Jesus was teaching all of his teachings, James was right there hearing it. 
James then taught on Jesus' teachings for 10 years and then wrote this letter, which in many ways is a summary of what it means to follow Jesus. It's full of practical help in how to follow Jesus, how to do it well, how to sit at Jesus' feet, and to learn from him. And what that produces is a mature Christian, someone who has been following Jesus for a while and has their character made complete. The Lord of all, Jesus Christ, the one that James worshipped and the one that we worship, He laid down his life for you and calls you to come and follow him. And today we're going to see just one little bit of what following him looks like. So grab your Bibles if you would. Let's turn to James 3. And if you don't have a Bible, grab that dark pew Bible in front of you. Start at the back and flip to page 178 where you will find James chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. It says, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body as well. Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they will obey us, we direct their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so great and driven by strong winds, They're still directed by a very small rudder, wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire? And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beast and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the image of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt water produce fresh. Amen. The Proverbs say that death and life are in the power of the tongue. And here, James focuses on the death part of that, the power of the tongue to destroy. And he uses the same image that I used a minute ago, the image of a roaring fire roaring through a town, started by just a small flame. And if the Lord has given you the ability to speak, then it's not an exaggeration to say that you could go home this afternoon and through a few words spark a chain reaction that could burn down all that you have. Every careless word that we speak, it's like a spark in this analogy. Most sparks just fall to the ground, right? I was grilling yesterday and lighting my grill, and a few sparks came out of it, and I wasn't very worried because there was water all around, and the sparks just fell to the ground, and nothing happened with them. But every once in a while, a spark catches, right, and causes a little flame. And most flames, nothing comes of them. They just die right down. But every once in a while, it causes a bigger flame, and eventually things spread out of control. Well, our words are the same way. Our careless words, sometimes they just fall to the ground and they don't make too much of a difference, but you never know when one is going to catch. You never know when that short word to your children is going to hurt them. 
You never know when that word of gossip that you let out is going to get someone so fired up that they go and spread it to all sorts of people that you didn't intend for it to be spread through. And these days, you never know what conversation is going to wind up on YouTube, do you? Could happen. So it's not an exaggeration to say that you really can lose your family with one sentence. You really could get yourself fired at work just with a couple of words to your boss. Or I could take this phone of mine, and if I had Twitter on it, I could fire up Twitter, or else I could fire up Facebook or something else, and in 280 characters, I'm pretty sure I could find something to say that would make sure that none of you ever let me in this pulpit again, couldn't I? It wouldn't take more than 280 characters to do that. It's that easy to ruin your reputation with words. Not only that, but this gets even bigger when our president carries around one of these phones, doesn't he? And when was the last time that you heard something about what the president tweeted on the news, right? So it is not an exaggeration to say that the rise and fall of nations is influenced by the 280 characters, I think it's 240, maybe it's 280 characters, that one man types into his phone and hits send. That is the power of words. And you may not have that power in your pocket, but even if you don't, you do carry it behind your teeth. And your kingdom may not be as big as his kingdom, but you could burn it down just as easily with a careless word. And so James says, See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. And so you've got to ask, where on earth could such destructive power come from, right? I mean, how am I able to do that much damage just with my words? Well, the answer is that it doesn't come from earth at all. Verse 6 says, The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the whole body and sets on tire the fire the entire course of our life, which is what I just talked about, and is set on fire by hell. Our tongues do as much damage as they do, they, they make our spouses cry. They make our coworkers hate us. They sow divisions in the church. Our words can do that because Satan himself is working through them. The tongue is set on fire by hell. He's the one that spoke the very first destructive words, right? He slithered right up to Eve, and he said that famous half-truth. Did God really say that you may not eat of any tree in the garden? And with those words, he sowed deception and he sowed sin, and he set off a fire that still burns and still blazes today. He is the king of destructive words, and he sets our tongues on fire as well. And that's not even it. I wish I was done, but the Bible says that not only is our tongue capable of such terrible destruction, not only is it set on fire by hell itself, but it says that you can't even tame it. Look at verse 7. It says, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. Right, you can walk away from this sermon determined that you're not going to be like that, right? Like, I am not going to let my words damage anybody. And you can have all the resolve in the world, but in a moment of anger, you might still drop the words anyway, right? That's how we work, because we just can't tame our own tongues with self-will. You can train a dog. Some of you guys have trained your dogs to do certain things. Some crazy guys out in Las Vegas trained a tiger, and they're making all kinds of money with these like tiger shows, these tigers that they have trained. But you would sooner tame a rattlesnake than tame your own tongue, 
Because we've got dominion over creation, but we don't have dominion over our own tongue. He says they're, they're restless evils. They're full of deadly poison, which might remind you of the Psalms saying that the venom of asps is on their lips. An asp is a venomous snake like a cobra or a, or a viper. That venom is on our lips. And so I'm asking all the time as I'm reading this, why? Like, wh- why is my tongue full of poison that could just be let out? Why do I breathe dragon breath all over people when I speak. Why, why are we like that? What's wrong with us that that could be happening? Why can't I wipe the venom off my lips? Well, remember how I said earlier that James followed Jesus for three years, and he probably grew up with him too, being an earthly brother of Jesus. And then he taught Jesus' teachings for 10 years or so, a decade or so, and then he wrote this letter. So most of what he's writing here is built on the teachings of Jesus. It's almost like he's writing it assuming that you know that Jesus says some other thing that grounds what he's saying. And that's what's going on here. There's some words of Jesus that make sense of all this. So I'm going to read Matthew 12, 33 and 34 to you and see if that helps to explain the question, why, why would our tongues be so destructive? I think we'll have it on the screens as well. Jesus says of our words, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, he says to his opponents, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? And here's the point, for the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. There is venom on our lips because there is venom in our hearts. Out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the same mouth that blesses Jesus on Sunday morning curses people that are made in the Lord's image. Why? Because our hearts are darkened. Your heart's full of bitterness, and so you fire off destruction at somebody. Your heart's full of envy, and so you slander somebody that you're jealous of and wish they had what they had. Your heart's impatient, and so you say things to those around you that are hurtful to them. Your heart wants to cover the truth, and so you lie to cover the truth, and either someone else pays for it or it comes back on you, and you pay it for it. Your heart is proud, and so you boast, and others see you boast, and they learn the kind of person you are. You were made in the image of God and given power over all creation, and yet because you don't have power over your own tongue, you wind up cursing others who were made in the image of God. And James says, my brothers, these things ought not to be. So, there's venom on our lips because there's venom in our hearts. And out of overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now, I didn't tell you all that to win the most depressing sermon ever award. But I do hope, though, that as we hear that, you're thinking to yourself, I want a way to tame my tongue. I hope you can see how this is true in your life. I see how it can be true in my life as well. I hope you can see how the things you're saying that are destructive are coming from the inside. And I hope it leaves you crying out to Jesus. Jesus, if there is a way to tame my tongue, I want it because I want my words to give life and not death, to build things up rather than tear things down. The reason that I hope it gets you right there is that actually in the Bible there is a way to tame your tongue. And that's what we're going to look at now to see what is 
is it? How can we tame our tongues? How is it that Jesus can tame our tongues? And so I'm going to give you just a couple of hints here from the text. If you turned away, turn back to James 3. We're going to look at two verses in there. There are two little hints that might tell you uh, how can the tongue be tamed. Let's see if you, if you see them. You may or you may not. In verse 7 and 8, James says that every kind of animal has been tamed, right? Every species of beasts and birds, reptiles, sea creatures of the sea has been tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But, he says, but no one can tame the tongue. So humans can tame animals, but humans can't tame their tongue. Okay, that's one hint. You may see it, you may not see it. Let's look at the other one. The other hint is back in chapter 1 in verse 26. We already preached on this, we already talked about it a little bit, um, but in, in 1 verse 26, he says something that really scares a lot of us. He says, uh, if anyone thinks that he is religious, but does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, that person's religion is worthless. Right? That's, the, that's the other hint. Okay, so we got those two together. We add those together. Let me ask him to you as questions. If humans can't tame their tongues, then who can? God can, right? Okay, if religion that does not tame your tongue is worthless, what does worthwhile religion do? It tames your tongue, right? And so the only way to have our tongues tamed is true religion in worship of the true God, Jesus Christ. And that is because he will give you a new heart, and out of a new heart, you will speak renewed things. So do you want to stop saying dumb stuff? I would love to stop saying dumb stuff. How happy that would make me. Do you want that? What you do is you come to Jesus and in true religion you sit at his feet for month after month, year after year, reading his word, learning from him, and he gives you a new heart and out of that new heart come life-giving Words. Let me give you a picture of this from Psalm 1. You can turn there if you want to, or we'll have it on the screens as well. Now, remember Jesus' words earlier uh, about the tree, right? Either a tree's good and its fruit's good, or a tree is bad and its fruit is bad. Hold that image in your head of that tree that's either good or bad and its fruit matches. Uh, and we'll read Psalm 1 here, which will talk about a person, and then all of a sudden it'll be talking about a tree. It says, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Okay, so this is lowercase l law here, right? So that means that all of the teaching and instruction of God, not, not the Mosaic law, but all of God's teaching, all of his instruction, all the words of the Bible, all the words of Jesus, everything he teaches, this man that the psalm is talking about loves that stuff. So he's reading it all of the time, morning and night. He's murmuring on it, meditating on it. He's looking at it and writing it down as he looks at it so that it'll connect some synapses in his mind about it. He's memorizing it. He's talking about it to people. He's studying it. I mean, this guy loves the Word of God. Day and night, he's in that thing. And look at how verse 3 describes him. And remember Jesus' tree picture. It says, He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. So how does that tree get strong and good, right? It, 
it sinks its roots down deep right next to the river. And the river's coming by and constantly bringing fresh nourishment to this tree. Just steady flow, always coming by. Tree's got its roots sunk down there and it sucks up that nourishment, just slurps it right up. And that makes the trunk strong, right? It's nourished now, it's hardy, it's healthy. And then the branches get strong as well. And then the leaves get full and hardy. And lastly, in season, it bears good fruit. Why does it bear good fruit all of a sudden? Because it's a good, healthy tree. It's being nourished. It's being enriched. So how does a Christian grow into the kind of person whose words that come out of their mouth are good and life-giving? Well, you sink your roots down deep into the teachings of Jesus, and that constant, steady flow renews the trunk. It makes your heart new. And so the Lord is teaching you and training you and making you a different person. He's given you a new heart that wants his word now because you're following him. And day after day, month after month, year after year, he was making that proverbial tree stronger, and so the leaves are harder. Next thing you know, what comes out of you is better because the inside is being fixed. What's in the root comes out at the fruit. And so those days, months, and years of time in the Word of God, of devotion to Jesus Christ, of hearing sermons, whether they're interesting to you or not, of singing songs with the church and finding a mentor and all the, all the spiritual things we do to grow at Jesus' feet, those things are renewing our hearts. They're nourishing us. And what comes out as a result is better. Then your words bring not destruction, but they bring life to others. Then all of a sudden, it's Proverbs 16, 24. It's pleasant words are like a honeycomb. They're sweet to the soul, and they're healing to the bones. Or it's Proverbs 18, uh, 18, 4. The words of a man's mouth are like deep waters. The fountain of wisdom is a bubbling brook. Or it's Proverbs 15, 4. A soothing tongue is a tree of life. You sit at the feet of Jesus for long enough and he will give you self-control, control over your tongue's impulses, control over your body's impulses, and words that bring life instead of words that bring destruction. Then your heart is full of thankfulness. And so when you speak, people start to realize, this is the kind of person that I want to listen to. This is a renewed heart. Your heart's full of love for others, and so you're speaking with love for others so much that when every once in a while those words can be hard words, right? Sometimes loving words are tough words. Well, you've built up a reputation over years of speaking loving words, and so now you've got an avenue that you can speak them, and people will actually listen because for years you have been speaking loving words. Or your heart is patient, and so you can patiently teach your children and those around you and those you work with instead of growing impatient with them. You turn into one who loves the truth, and so you tell the truth even when it hurts you, even when it costs you greatly, and it would be better to lie. You, your heart loves the truth, and so you can't help but tell the truth. Your heart is humble, and so you boast in others, and you boast in Jesus, and you forget all about yourself, and people say, that's the kind of person I want to listen to. That is life in those words. So another way to say this is that Christian maturity will come with self-control. It'll come with control over your tongue, and it'll come with control over your body as well. You'll still sin, don't get me wrong, even mature Christians still sin, but your life will be characterized by a pattern of self-control in both words and deeds. 
And this is actually the goal of everything that guys like me do in pulpits like this. This is the goal of Christian preaching. We, we want everyone in the room and anyone who listens to one day, if they aren't already, be a solid, mature Christian. Christian maturity is the goal of Christian preaching. If you're not following Jesus, we want you following him. And if you are following him, we want you to grow full-grown, bearing leaves, bearing fruit in Christian maturity. And there's a verse that says this. It's in Colossians. 1 as well. Uh, And it says this. It says, what we do and then why. It says, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. That's what we do. We proclaim Jesus Christ, we warn, we teach. And then why? So that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So why am I up here doing this right now? Because one day Jesus is going to come back And I want to take you before Jesus and say, look how mature, look how righteous. Did you hear the words that he said in Sunday school last week? Look how mature and how righteous. That's my goal for every single one of you. That's the goal of every right Christian preacher and every word we say in this pulpit. And the reason I say that is the word for maturity there is the same word that James uses in this text. In verse 2, he says... If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a, your translation might say, perfect man. That word is mature. It's the same word, like perfect as in complete, not perfect as in sinless. He is a mature man, able to bridle his whole body as well. So James is saying that Christian maturity comes with self-control over the tongue and the body. He's saying if you are that person, and, and probably several of you in this room, it describes you. If you are someone who, generally speaking, has control over your tongue, you don't have outbursts, you don't tend to say destructive things, people want to hear you talk because it's life-giving. If you're that person, well, you're probably a mature Christian, and I bet you have control over your whole body as well. Why? Because that self-control came from Jesus, and it's a package deal, control over the tongue and control over the body. If you control the bit, you control the horse, right? If you control the rudder, you control the ship. If Jesus gives you control over your tongue, you'll have control over your body as well, because that's how maturity and self-control work. Okay, lastly, you might have noticed we've been working backwards through this text, and that's because I think it's, it's easier to present this starting at the bottom and going to the top. So we're going to end at the very good beginning. A very What is it? Start at the very beginning, a very good place to start? We're going to end at the very beginning, a very good place to end this morning. We're going to go back to verse 1, and we're going to end there. Some of y'all got that. A couple of y'all got that reference. So verse 1 says, then, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such, we will incur a stricter judgment. Those words are built on everything we've talked about, right? Tongues can be so destructive, right? The power of words to destroy is huge. And we can't tame our tongues because the problem isn't really the tongue, it's our heart, right? And so we must come to Jesus. He fixes and renews our hearts so that then... Our words can be given self-control to, and then our words can be given life. And that takes years of Christian maturity to get there. And so, on top of that, because the tongue can be so destructive and it takes so long to get to Christian maturity, James says, let not many of you become teachers, because teachers are held to a stricter judgment. We're all judged by the same standard. We're all judged by God's holiness. But teachers are held to it more strictly. If you're going to take a teaching position... 
you are going to have a lot of opportunities to stumble in your word. You're going to get up there every Sunday and you're going to talk. People are going to listen to you. And if 99% of your words are good and 1% of them are still bad and destructive, you're going to spout out a lot of destructive stuff in Sunday school. You've got to get to that 100% everything you're saying is life. If you're going to talk as much and be listened to as much as a teacher is. And what's more than that, if you're a trusted teacher in the church and you were to speak something that was destructive, well, it would be even more destructive than if you weren't a teacher, right? Imagine if one of us, you know, someone who's sitting a few spaces next to you, were to start spreading really destructive, like uh, divisive things in our church body. That would be bad and destructive, wouldn't it? Imagine if your Sunday school teacher did that, though. And imagine if they did it for eight successive weeks in a Sunday school class before anybody else found out about it. That would be really destructive. And so not only are the opportunities to stumble with your words multiplied when you teach, but the destruction of them is then magnified when you do teach. And so James is driving home here. If you're not mature, if the Lord hadn't sanded off your rough edges yet, if you don't have self-control yet, you don't need to be in a teaching position because your words will carry so much weight and so much value. That's why Paul says to Timothy, keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching, both, right? Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. He says that because Jesus says, whoever leads one of these little ones of mine astray, it would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck, right? You do not want your words leading people astray. And if you're a young man or a young woman aspiring a teaching position in the church, you must check your life over and over again before you take that position. And then after you do as well, you've got to look at yourself and say, am I living with self-control? If you can't control the impulses of your body, well, then you can't control the impulses of your tongue either. And you're still going to spout out some destructive stuff and you're not ready to teach the word of God. Sit at Jesus' feet a little longer and see what he does with you. See if he seals off and sands off your character and makes you complete. And then maybe you'll be ready to teach the Word of God. You know, when I was in high school, I ran track and field. Uh, not because I was particularly good at it, but because there weren't tryouts. And so if you came to all the practices, you got a varsity letter at the end. And so, hey, free varsity letter. So I endured all the practices for several years and got the varsity letter, and it was great. Uh, but none of us were particularly fast on the long-distance squad. I ran the mile and the 800. We weren't winning meets. We weren't setting records. We, most of us never broke a five-minute mile. We were not particularly fast. And so our coach one day says to us, all right, boys, one of us has got to get fast and start scoring points for this team. So we're going to work on some stuff. He said, we're going to work on breathing first. And we're looking at him thinking, we need to learn how to run fast, not how to, not how to breathe. What are you talking about? And he's like, okay, so he teaches us, like, there's all this technique to breathing. When you, who would have thought when you run? He teaches that. I don't remember any of it today. But he teaches it to us. And then he says, okay, now we're going to go on an oxygen run. And we're like, okay, what's an oxygen? Like, do you get, like, a mask or something? This sounds really fun. He says, no, you run eight miles, and it doesn't matter how fast or slow you run it. You just have to make sure every breath is correct because I want you to practice breathing. And so we ran eight miles, and we didn't run them very fast, but we practiced breathing every time. And sure enough, we got faster. You breathe in, you breathe out better, and that oxygen renews your heart and sends out fresh blood to all your capillaries, and suddenly your arms and your legs can, can run better just from breathing better. Now, I never would have thought that that would have worked, but it did. It made us faster because it renewed the blood in our hearts. 
Likewise, some of you would love to have control over your tongue, I know. And you may be deceived into thinking that one more book on rhetoric or one more really trying hard not to say anything destructive is the answer. But really what you need is to learn how to breathe so that the, so that the breath can renew your heart and the blood can go out to your limbs and you can run better. You need that everyday habit of sitting at Jesus' feet with the word. You need an older friend who can mentor you and teach you in the ways of Jesus. You need a good Sunday school class. You need to be here every week and breathe in and out the Lord's words so that you can be renewed and what's good inside is what will come out of you because what's inside is what comes out. Let's pray.